the Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards are fast approaching. The Beamers showcase the outstanding talent we have in the Australasian integrative medicine profession and are held in conjunction with the Bioceuticals Research Symposium. To book your ticket to this gala dinner event, visit bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Narelle Henschel. She holds a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy and has a private practice called Your Remedy, based in Crow's Nest, New South Wales. Narelle graduated as Ducks of her year in 2015 with a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy. Since then, she's been in clinical practice in Crow's Nest with a special focus on helping people get better sleep. She's passionate about patient education and health awareness and focuses her treatments on diet and lifestyle modifications so that her patients attain their best possible level of wellness and vitality. Narelle has a special interest of sustained food as medicine, digestive health issues and natural approaches to menopause. Welcome to FX Medicine. Narelle, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Now, I first think we need to go into your background because you've got a very interesting background from not just a totally different profession, but also your history when you're a child, your fourth generation farming stock. Uh, that, that's correct. So um, I guess my story and my journey into being a naturopath is kind of almost come a full circle. Uh, grew up on a dairy farm, so we were, you know, we grew our own vegetables. We obviously had plenty of milk and um, takeaway food was not an option for us because we lived out of town. Right. Uh, so everything was, you know, home home cooked. So all in all, it was a, a nice, healthy lifestyle. Um, as I was growing up, I was quite keen to be a, a doctor or a vet, um, but I was really very shy as a child. So uh, in high school, I thought I'd take a drama class to try and overcome uh, this shyness. Wow. And as a, yeah, as a result of doing that, I kind of got a bit seduced by the, the bright stage lights, as mm. they say. And I went off to the Big Smoke in Brisbane to study a Bachelor of Arts in Drama. Wow. <laughs> so I've got to say, I mean, that's that's actually strength in itself. So this is something that really, really amazes me about quiet achievers, about these quiet, supposedly shy people. They're actually quite strong. Um, whereas me as a peacock, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a wuss. Um, so that, that's actually a very strong thing to say. You chose yourself to face your own fears. Yeah, and for me it was really quite tough because I was, yeah, really on the introverted scale. But I think I knew even like when I got to high school that I needed to overcome it. Otherwise, it was probably going to be something that would hold me back because underneath it I'm probably quite a determined, uh, focused personality mm. um, as well. So, yes, it was uh, probably looking back, it was a bit of an interesting decision for a teenager to sort of make. But, yeah, it's... Uh, it certainly led to some adventures after that, that's for sure. I uh, got to travel overseas, worked with a Swedish magician for a couple of years, yeah. uh, touring around Europe. So that was, you know, for someone in their 20s, that was uh, a lot of fun. But it wasn't perhaps the healthiest of lifestyles. Um, lots of uh, roadhouse-style food. And I would imagine. imagine. The menus aren't, aren't on the healthy range of the scale when it comes to that. And it also actually worked against my natural morning person tendencies, being from a dairy farm yeah. um, that was bred in my DNA. And um, yeah, my sleep did start to decline during that time. So yeah, that the lifestyle wasn't exactly um, the best one for me. And then a couple of things kind of happened to really make me question my career choice. Hmm. And that was the first one was my mother uh, developed colon cancer. Right. Um, now, happily, she's been eight years in remission, so that's great. And the second one was that my brother suicided. Um, so his hmm. death really 
escalated that insomnia and it became a chronic kind of thing. And at one point I was only sleeping three or four hours a night. So I became quite anxious. I gained weight. I had, was irritable and not, you know, I wasn't in a good place mm. in terms of my health and that, and, you know, compared to sort of where I'd come from growing up, it was a, it was a big disconnect. So I kind of knew that I had to make a change in my life and, and go and do something else. And so I, you know, rediscovered um, natural medicine and I got interested in entropathy and decided to study it. And uh, now here I am. Get back to where you once belong, as the famous yeah. song said. So yeah, was, was there a true acceptance in, in your family of natural medicines or was it something that you came back to try and find an answer for things? Um, I think there'd always been in my family, there'd always been a focus on um, not overtly on natural medicines, but certainly to not necessarily run off to the doctor every time there was something, you know, wrong. There was more a sense of let's try and fix this ourselves, let's have a good diet, let's have chicken soup, let's have, you know, hot lemon and honey drinks when you were sick, all that kind of yep. Uh, of sort of approach to things. So I'd say overall probably my family has a balanced view of, of health. They're not, you know, they're not one-way anti a medical establishment by any means, but they're not sort of, you know, they, they're looking to support a, a healthy lifestyle uh, would be the kind of the, the way that I grew up. I think we as a society could learn so much from that approach, that, that look, let's, you know, toughen up for a, for a second and let's just handle this and see how far we get. Um, yes, because the, I mean, doctors themselves will decry just how many useless times, um, useless visitations they get from patients want seeking treatments that they can't, they have nothing to offer for. Um, and I just wonder whether we as a society are falling into this, everything needs a pill, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, definitely. And we've sort of forgotten some of those more basic lifestyle kind of interventions and you know for us it was the practical thing as well you it's just not so easy to run off to the doctor when you're you know you're out in the country it's uh you know it can be a bit of a, a trip and a trek and take you away from other things that you need to be doing so there was i suppose that <laughs> that aspect of it as well um to talking about uh sleep hygiene did you find that just going back to your roots if you if i can use that term did you find that just learning the natural therapies that are available actually helped your sleep in part, or did you have to actively search for these sleep hygiene me measures? Um, I think when I looked, when I was going through it, there is a lot of general information out there mm. on on sleep hygiene, and um, but it's the application of it. Um, into a specific case that's sort of lacking because there's there's like there's probably about 15 different core recommendations for sleep hygiene but not all of them are going to apply to each individual and it's quite interesting because the the guy that's credited with you know having sleep hygiene uh, Peter Howry a psychologist in the 70s uh, kind of came up with the the terms and it was um about having these daily habits that would help you get quality nighttime sleep and make sure you were fully alert during the day. And his whole thing was that he said you really have to customise it to the, the patient, that you should give them two or three key recommendations of those sleep hygiene um, things that they can implement. Otherwise, it becomes just a broad-based thing that people don't really know how to implement, which yeah. I think is kind of interesting from a naturopathic perspective because that's how we're treating people anyway, you know, very much a customised um, solution. Hmm. So, yeah, so it was quite interesting when I did research and found that out, you know, after I became a naturopath, that was like, oh, that's maybe why some of these generic things didn't work for me at that point in time. I think what's interesting is the even the definition of hygiene. Most of us would now think of that word as being, being clean or sterile or sanitised or something like that. And particularly yeah. with the preponderance of the quote unquote Dettol generation type ads of cleaning, you know, every surface that you can think of with uh, benzalkonium type um, cleaning fluids and getting rid of every source of, of natural bacteria that inhabits the world. But indeed, the gr 
the word hygiene is from the ancient Greek meaning the art of health. Yes. So um, it's it makes sense why he probably chose that. But mm. I suppose, yeah, as you say, the context that we look at the word hygiene now probably makes it a little bit more difficult for the, the layperson especially to understand perhaps what, what those principles are really really getting at. And a lot of them are quite common sense, you know, you could say, if we can still use the term common sense these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> Does it exist? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, I mean, you know, the the basic ones of, you know, caffeine, you know, most people know that if you, you know, have a, you know, large coffee before you go to bed, sleeping will probably be a little bit difficult. I think that's, that's quite, you know, known. But there's some other ones that, you know, are a little bit less well known or a bit harder to implement. So, um, those are, are ones that are often interesting to introduce to clients and they can get to think about their sleep in different ways. Um, one that I'm using quite a bit in clinic at the moment is it wasn't on his original list, but he did introduce it later in his time. It's about stress, mm. um, which, you know, we, we all know about, especially as naturopaths. And um, he called the thing this anticipatory stress. So often at night time, yes. he said that a lot of people, the first time they kind of get to kind of unwind from their day is when they jump into bed. And so suddenly all the things that they haven't sort of had time to sort of think about come up in their minds. And so their minds start ticking over and become really alert. So he was advocating that you have a wind-down time where you either, you know, journaling is quite popular at the moment and can be very effective for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, writing a simple to-do list, you know, that's a you know basic kind of thing to kind of get it out of your head and so you you don't have to think about it as soon as you jump into bed. So, um, yeah, and meditation is another thing that is quite beneficial for a lot of people to do either, you know, before they go to bed or as a part, some part of their day to actually get that, you know, relaxa relaxation mode uh, yeah. rather than being in that, you know, more fight or flight, sympathetic dominant mode. You know, that's something I'd never even thought separately about was that anticipatory stress thing about it's the first time that, that people get to actually wind down is once they're in bed. That's A, sad, but B, very interesting that we need to actually separate the place of sleep to um, from a place of relaxation or wind down. Is that how you teach people to do it or can they do it in bed? I prefer them, um, like you say, to separate the the sleep environment from, you know, from their work environment or, you know, whatever else is going on. So I think it's beneficial to do it prior to getting into bed so that when you're getting into bed, you really, your headspace is, is quite, you know, clear and, and ready to go. But if it doesn't suit, you know, people say, oh, I can't do it. I say, well, you know, have a routine when you do get into bed. But ideally you want to associate going into bed with being already relaxed. Um, so, yeah, it is, it's a, it is, something that I really do focus on more and more because I find a lot of my sleep clients, it is this stress component that they haven't dealt with. Their daytime stuff, they haven't released to let them get into a relaxed mode to go into sleep. Mm. So. Ordinarily, I'd think of asking this question a little bit later on in the podcast, but I think now's the appropriate time. Teenagers, you're talking about bedrooms and the bed being the place of sleep, trying to tease it apart from a place where you wind down. But teenagers, you know, traditionally stay in their room, grunt from the inside about when they want food. And, um, <laughs> and um, um, they are very often hibernate in their room where they are actually stimulated, being on the computer, their devices, that sort of thing. Not, not the least of which is in bed, but even as part of the bedroom, they don't have a separate place where they can say that place is now ending, where now is my place to wind down. Is this one of the reasons perhaps that we have such an issue with teenagers? I know that doesn't answer pre-iPod, pre-tablet type um, society when, um, you know, teenagers have still were still nocturnal, um, but, um, you know, they've, they've sort of hibernated in this room. They don't have a disconnect. Yeah, and I, that is a that is actually a fair point because it is you know 
it's so often you have to have your study desk. You know, I know as a teenager, I and that was you know pre-internet, pre <laughs> pre iPad. That's that's really dating me now. Mm. Um, but you <laughs> do too. have all that stuff in your room, and you know you're keeping all your things in your room because that's your space. So you potentially got a lot of distractions in there. So I do think it is a challenge for that. But on the upside, it's normally a time in your life where you don't have these other things that can interfere with sleep like they you know hopefully don't have any other comorbid you know conditions that would interfere with sleep so a bit of sleep hygiene can actually really help be helpful and a lot of it is actually about these these days I find is the devices themselves to kind of be able to kind of pull back that stranglehold that these screens which are so addictive um have and there was a very interesting uh, meta-analysis in the um, Journal of the American Association last year and it said that in the US there was um, almost 90% of teenagers had a device, at least one device in their sleeping environment and that they were using it and displacing their sleep and they, they did, the conclusion was that it was actually a you know, a reasonable public health concern. Mm, absolutely. For this. So, and I would agree, I think that's one of the things. It's certainly changed over the last 10 or 15 years, the amount of screens we have. And, you know, the teenage generation now, that generation has sort of grown up with that. So, um, like my generation, I didn't have that. So, for me, it's probably not as addictive to want to have that. But if you don't know any different, it's. I think it's... Uh, yeah, it's harder to break that addiction to not be on your phone in bed and, you know, reading on an iPad rather than a book. And it's used at schools and universities and all that. So it's, you know, it's part of, it's almost another extension of their body, mm. these devices. So. so I have to ask now then, you know, iPad, tablet, phone, bright screens have really only been with us the last, I mean, less than a decade, really. Yeah. Um, Obviously, people suffered from insomnia prior to that, and obviously, um, sleep hygiene has been around. The the methods of sleep hygiene have been around for some time before that. So, what were the causes back then? Was it only stress? No, I think there's there's probably a you know uh, a few different things. There's probably exercise is a big one that can uh, you know make a big difference in terms of being able to sleep better Mm. if you're not getting sufficient amounts of exercise or doing it at the right time. So people who exercise too vigorously, too close to sleep can have um, yeah, they're still issues wired. with yeah. Yeah, going to sleep. Um, but also that the fact that they're, they're maybe not doing enough exercise. Um, there's good research for older people with sleeping problems that if they you know increase their exercise to 30 to 60 minutes a day, within a month their you know, total sleep time will increase quite a bit and they'll have deeper sleep. So, um, and I think there's always been things with um, circadian rhythm dysregulation, people not exposing themselves to light and that. So you've got light from the screens, but also, you know, oftentimes we end up spending a lot of time indoors when we, you know, maybe transition into more more people working in offices, office environments, you know, less, you know, manual work, outdoor work. and because the you know the sun sets and the daylight set our rhythm and synchronise our clocks and help us you know have the good flow of our cortisol and melatonin and that as well. The other thing that I think in terms of light, which is is not there's no research to back this up solidly, but I think fluorescent lighting and LED lighting also plays a part in that as well in terms of our internal light yes and that's a style of the light bulb that emits this kind of blue wave light and interferes with our melatonin production so ah now that's yeah. something i want to delve into so yes. it's blue light because there's proponents of blue light isn't there well, you can use it if you've got certain sleep disorders to move circadian, like your phase shift people yeah. with that. Yeah. But um, generally, blue wave lights on the short short wave mm. of the spec light spectrum, so it will suppress melatonin production. Right. That particular light, and there is evidence that uh, a warm kind of tungsten, what they call a tungsten yellow, ready kind of not you know infrared, but 
in those tones mm. doesn't interfere as much with with your melatonin. Ah, so yeah. I think well, I think we need to delve into this: the controllers of sleep, the hormones that we get released in a time-wise fashion. And what interests me is the flipping sort of effect that we would think serotonin, for instance, would have. You know, normally we'd say it's a stimulatory or an alertness hormone or neurotransmitter. Um, yes. But it has different effects when we're preparing for sleep. Is that right? It does. And you need to have sufficient amounts of it. Well, firstly, serotonin is the precursor to your melatonin. Yep. It converts along with SAMI and... Um, vitamin B12 into uh, melatonin. Uh, things that can kind of impact your serotonin, of course, are if your tryptophan is getting shunted down a pathway to make B3, um, and that it can be because if you're consuming a lot of alcohol or if you've got dysbiosis, so you can actually have a shortage of the, you know, the building block, the amino acid building block to kind of kick, kick it off, and that's not uncommon, you know, especially with increasing amounts of, digestive diseases that when you sort of trace people's sleep problems back, you sort of go, ooh, I think this could be a uh, bit of a driver, but yeah, they're melatonin. Yeah. They're not actually making enough melatonin. Right. And then, you know, we can sabotage our melatonin on all these other ways by light and uh, stress and, you know, insufficient amounts of magnesium, which is depleted with stress. So mm. it kind of becomes a, a little bit of a vicious cycle. So Two key hormones, I suppose, that really drive the circadian cycle are your melatonin and your cortisol. So cortisol is what I tell people in clinic. It's your get-up-and-go hormone. It, it rises in the morning and there's a little bit of a dip in it in the you know early afternoon, early to mid-afternoon when we kind of get that 3 a.m. slump and then it will pick up again and uh, it will depending on what your chronotype is naturally, between 7pm and 1am, you'll get a drop and that's that's what they call your peak alertness period. So ideally you want to be trying to go to sleep after that peak alertness period in the evening. So like I know mine, for example, is around 9 o'clock in the evening. So if I tried to go to bed before 9 o'clock, I would probably have difficulty going to sleep mm. because my body in the circadian cycle is not... Um, ready for that. Whereas I definitely know my father's is around the 7pm because he's always falling asleep uh, in front of the news, the 7 o'clock news. So I think he's, his is a little bit earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but is that is that a natural state or is that a state brought on by stress or necessity? or? Um, it, it can be a normal state for someone who is probably, and you know, he's probably someone who is a extreme lark, what they call an extreme lark chronotype. So really uh, early morning person and, you know, given that he would be up at, you know, 3.30am, you know, when he was on the dairy farm, he's retired now, but um, I think old habits die hard. And so that's his sort of natural thing, whereas some people are naturally more, you know, the night owls, the owls you know, yeah. don't go to bed till much later and that is their natural state of being. And there's some evidence that there's actually genetic you know, ways that that is determined by your genetics. So okay. if your families tends to be more to morning people, you'll probably be that way and more no. evening <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and then there's people who sit in the middle and, you know, modern lifestyles kind of designed for the, the people that sit in the middle. I think um, the sleep doctor, Dr. Michael Bruce, calls them bears. 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 I think that's, yeah, he's, he's got four chronotypes in his his uh, situation. Okay. So, yeah, so there's there is that sort of you know within your circadian rhythm, there's that drop in alertness that you have in the evening whenever that falls for you, and um, then the other thing that plays into sleep is your sleep homeostatic drive. So that happens as a result of the accumulation of a chemical called adenosine. Uh, which is produced by your brain when you're awake. Mm -hmm. And ideally that is building, building, building during the day so that by the end of the day, what they call your sleep pressure is quite high. So your, your sleepiness, mm -hmm. not tiredness, they're mm -hmm. sort of two different things. You can be tired without being sleepy. And you want to, your sleeping sweet spot is kind of when that dip in alertness falls for you and when you've got your peak kind of adenosine happening and you would really fall asleep very easily at that point in time. 
So that's kind of the ideal spot to go to bed. And I, in clinic, sometimes I'll get people to track their um, their peaks of alertness, like throughout the day, how alert they're feeling. So you can they can kind of find their own individual one, and then they can use that information to look at, okay, when is the best time for me to go to sleep? Because another key thing that um, is in the sleep hygiene research is that going to bed before you're sleepy is really counterproductive. Yes. Because it creates stress in and amongst itself. So you actually want to make sure you're sleepy before you go to bed. And if you're not really sleepy and go to bed, you're better off getting up for a bit and doing something calming and relaxing, not on your iPad. Yeah. Uh, as one of my clients is saying, yeah, I'm getting up and reading. I said, oh, what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading on my iPad. And I'm like, oh, okay, I see the problem. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You've always got to remember to keep asking the questions yes. down the line and yeah. not just assume, yes. not just assume. I remember those things called books, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember particularly when they used to fall on my face. Dunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so exactly. You, you mentioned something very interesting to me, and that was the difference between sleepiness and tiredness. How do you tease the two apart? Well, it can be a little bit tricky, especially in those clients that have had this condition for a while. They may have they may have a chronic fatigue picture. They may have adrenal kind of stuff going on for them. Mm. I sort of like to kind of describe it a little bit as sleepy as when you've got that, literally that book falling on your face or you're in front of the TV and you're going off to sleep, whereas tired is just that feeling of I've got no energy, I'm exhausted, but I'm I'm not ready to go to sleep. And most people, when they start actually tuning into that a bit more, can kind of go, yeah, I am feeling tired, but there's no way I could go to sleep at the moment. Mm. So, yeah, it is one of those ones that, you know, is a, sometimes a bit of a more of a challenge to get people to to tune in and listen to that to go. Okay, what's the difference between being tired and what's the difference between being actually sleepy? And I actually wonder whether when you're tired but not necessarily sleepy, and you try to go to bed, I think you mentioned it before you, that you might have this sort of um, flight or fright response that might happen if if there's some underlying stress or that you haven't addressed, and then then you actually end up waking up. Yeah. Do you ever? Yeah. Yeah, that is really, and that's the classic picture of these people who will go to sleep. They'll be so, so worn out that they go to sleep and they'll sleep for an hour or a couple of hours and then they'll wake up and they'll feel really alert. So is that the anticipatory stress or is that something different? Well, it can be a couple of things. It can be, you know, their blood sugar might not be, as well regulated as they like if their adrenal function, you know, can't sustain kind of an overnight fast um, and the body will push out some adrenaline and wake them up. Yeah. It can also be because they their melatonin will rise to a little bit but their cortisol hasn't dropped enough and the melatonin kind of can't sustain enough to, um, you know, keep them asleep and that magnesium can be really useful for people who kind of have that because magnesium helps your melatonin hang around and stay up for a lot longer and also it calms calms the nervous system down and relaxes generally so so we've spoken a few times about these bright screens i've noticed on my iphone indeed i employ it um that after a certain time of night you can have that dimming effect is that useful or is it really a sham um it is useful. It's partially useful. I'll kind of give one of those answers. Yeah. I think it um, it helps with the blue light situation, so that stopping the the melatonin, helping the melatonin not to. But I kind of say it's look. It's a it's a bit of a crude fix. The other thing mm. that happens with screens and that is that they they stimulate just by the content that's on them. Yeah. So you're stimulating your brain with. Uh, you know, checking your social media feed and, oh, my God, what's happening there? And, the, you know, this has happened in the world. And so your brain starts thinking about those things. Whereas um, if you were, you know, say reading a book, you wouldn't necessarily have those, all that sort of – and changing stimulation is the other thing that screens give you because, you know, we often flick between multiple different things as well. So I think while the um, things like what they have in the um, the iOS now – to do that, and there's also a program that you can install called F.Lux, 
which is, is uh-huh. quite good. It takes the blue light out of your computer screen, so you can have it. And it, that can be quite useful for people studying who need to sort of, you know, study at night. And I know when I was studying, I used uh, that program because, you know, sometimes that's the only time you've got to, you know, do your study. So you do need to um, do that. But, yeah, there's the, the other component of the screens is actually the stimulating content component mm. uh, that doesn't do much for your sleep. What about the, the facility of various types of music to enable, um, to induce sleep? Um, so things like, um, you know, Packle Bell's Canon in G, for instance, is famous for inducing alpha because it works on that, forgive me if this is wrong, is it eight to 14 cycles per second? It's sort of known for inducing alpha waves. Yeah. There's various other types of classical music. I mean, one of my favourite things is Hulst, the planets. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and yet... Um, you know, there's various, multiple of new age type musics, um, anything from Tony O'Connor through to Andreas Vollenweider, you know. So there's all of these different types of music. Are there any specific types that are better or worse for, for sleep? I think generally when people say to me about music for sleep, again, it's sort of, you know, you, on that stimulation scale, if it's something that you kind of would want to get up and dance to, <laughs> Probably not ideal for your, or you know, headbang your too. <laughs> headbang too, or, or it's going to annoy your mum or something like that. It's probably not going to be. So you do want that, you know, and there's a lot of classical music is, you know, well, not all classical music, but there's a lot of classical music that be quite, um, you know, beneficial in that. And there's, there's a lot of various, if you go onto, you know, iTunes or Spotify, there's whole playlists and albums, you know, with specific sleep sleep inducing and look I've got and I use some that I recommend in clinic to people and you know I find myself sometimes if I'm having problems winding down they can be really useful just to have in the background as you you know drift off to sleep as well so I think there's yeah definitely something for for that you know the whole um Brahms lullabies yeah. you know, that <laughs> have to babies. <laughs> would, would you have any resources that we can put up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners to Yeah, to I do have some uh, stuff that I recommend routinely in clinic. They're, Great. They're not, they're not my specific resources, but they're ones that uh, other people have produced. And Beautiful. Yeah, I, I recommend them, so I'll send them through. Okay, so let's go into sleep as, a, as an entity. We still don't know. Is that correct, that we still really don't know why we sleep? Yes, that's, I don't think there's any definitive stuff and there's, being, there's a lot of research being done to try and find out about it. Mm. We've, we've definitely moved on from the, oh, sleep is just when the brain shuts itself down and nothing much well, is happening. Well, it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> no, we're actually, the brain's actually really quite active but in a, in a different way yeah. and in a different wavelength than uh, normally. But, yes, there are a lot of uh, things uh, that are happening when sleep. Some of them are that we do know about is that learning and memory is really impacted on sleep. It, you help consolidate your memories, so short-term memories go into long-term memories. So uh, students, the best thing you can do before an exam is actually sleep, not stay up all night and uh, cram <laughs> if you want to remember stuff the next day. Um, it's an area that I'm really interested in is how it impacts on metabolism and weight gain and the interplay of the hormones and that that lack of sleep influences. So if you don't get enough sleep, you um, your satiety hormone, leptin, decreases the effect of that and the uh, appetite, you know, I'm hungry hormone, ghrelin uh, rises, so you get these um, feel, subjective feelings of hunger, per se, which is thought to be because your body thinks it's got to stay awake for longer, so it's going to need more energy. The brain doesn't want to run out of energy, so you get those signals that you've got to eat. And some research tends to say that you want that calorie-dense carb food yeah. is what you start to really crave. Um, and most people would know if they've had a night where they haven't slept so well. Yeah, you do tend to be wanting to reach for the muffins and the, you know, the donuts kind of end of the food spectrum rather than, you know, fruits and healthy foods. I even um, I even remember some practitioner recommending that that people have a high carb loaded smaller 
meal um, towards sleep. And I thought, what? It's a bit of a Band-Aid, isn't it? <laughs> Is, I, I couldn't. I couldn't ratify it, <laughs> but yeah, what I, I guess where I'm interested in, what, what, what about the midnight snacker? What about the person who goes to sleep and then wakes up? Yes, and that's an interesting one, and I think um, I have looked at that question because I've kind of wanted to determine, because you hear people say, no carbs at night, you know, that's bad, you won't sleep, and, or you oh, have yeah. lots of protein at yeah. night, and um, again, I suspect there's probably a bit of individual variability you know, to that, like like most things, um, there's no one, <laughs> you know, answer that answers it for everyone. Yeah. But um, I think the the people with the carbohydrate cravings, I suspect there's probably a little bit of blood sugar dysregulation yep. going on there. Whether it's an avert that you would see that in a blood test, or if it's a pre, you know, pre-diabetic kind of state where they're not able to, as I was talking about before, maintain the overnight fast their adrenals unable to release enough um, glucose and the brain kind of, you know, wakes them up to say we're hungry, feed us some some stuff. Um, so, but I've also seen people who do really well with a little bit of a protein snack before bed. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I think it can go either way in terms of that. And it does always make me want to dig further into how their blood sugar and their adrenal function is when people tell me, oh, yeah, I get up in the middle of the night and have some toast. Um, so I think it's Henry Osiki uh, talks about in his sleep stuff where you actually do need some energy to sleep. Mm-hmm. So And there's some um, stuff going around. I saw on a blog or something the other day where um, honey and salt there was some kind of concoction of honey and salt that supposedly cured insomnia um, as well. And that's probably working on that, you know, providing some glucose and energy before you go to sleep. Right. Yeah. Okay. Honey and salt. That's an interesting one. Yeah. So I was wondering if that salt was, you know, to keep, you know, for adrenal function and, yeah. So but I haven't found out the reason, though. Yeah. Well, what about... Um you know, the sort of middle age thing, you know, we, we attribute, um, let's say uh, women might be more aware of the symptoms of hot flushes and anxiety at night, um, whichever comes first there. Um, yeah. And that might interfere with sleep. But but men get these sorts of things too, where anger might creep into sleep and inf- or interfere with their sleepfulness. Yes, that's true. And I think uh, there's a couple of things going on with as you get into, you know, your 40s and beyond is one thing is that melatonin production naturally declines a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there can be the effects of a less than healthy lifestyle um, building up. And traditionally at this point, maybe, and I think also where we're at is it's a lot of um, stress just generally in life in your sort of your 40s. Like yep. often people with starting families a bit later may have, Kids still go, just going, becoming teenagers, oh, and that can be quite stressful for <laughs> for parents. Um, uh, big mortgages, you know, are quite common. Whereas at one time, I suppose a lot of people might have owned their own home by the time they were forty. I think these days it's a little bit that's getting pushed back more and more. Um, also, just in terms of the job, a lot of people might have jobs that are at the higher level of responsibility, so there's more work worries associated. With, with that and, um, yeah, and sometimes health conditions starting to kind of come in uh, at that point that they haven't been aware of. And, you know, and their parents as well, when you get into your 40s, your parents are normally getting a bit older, so there's also that worry about health of and looking after uh, your parents and that too that mm. plays into that, as well as women obviously have hormonal shifts that, you know, the changing of estrogen and progesterone, so um, that can impact greatly on sleep. Well, women's sleep can be impacted on just month in the monthly cycle because progesterone um, tends to make you sleep better mm. so in the second half of your cycle, just to, you know, as a monthly thing. But um, yeah, as they start to go through perimenopausal um, things, the estrogen fluctuations, which start to set off those hot flushes because the estrogen helps and serotonin regulate the thermoregulation, they interplay into that signalling. So you, if your temperature goes up during the night, you sleep better when your core body temperature is lower. 
Um, and if your temperature's going up a little bit, it's enough to kind of make you sleep restless and, mm. and disturbed. I, I learned this from Jerome Saras about that temperature issue, that our temperature naturally, naturally, our sort of set point naturally declines so that we may be a little bit colder um, or cooler, let's, let's say the word cooler, um, during sleep, our body temperature decreases. Um, and that's our basal metabolic rate. You're tied to it. Yeah. Um, but what I find is interesting, in, and I was talking with Moira Bradfield about this going, you what? She, and she was talking about the people that need to just stick a foot out of the side of the bed. That's enough for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it piqued my interest because, like, I cannot sleep when I'm too hot. I just cannot do it. Um, yeah. whereas my wife would be, you know, she used to lump the, the blankets on herself. And, um, of course she's been through menopause and she's ridden it very well, but even to this day, she needs a, I prefer a very cool room and Lee, um, likes to feel really snugly and warm. Uh, it's a real, the real set point difference in our body temperatures. Yeah, and that's not uncommon. I think men and women tend to have different, you know, well, there's different basal metabolic rates mm. and that between uh, men and women naturally. Also, you know, thyroid stuff comes into it. Women can tend to be more, have issues with thyroid yes. uh, than men. So stuff like that can happen. Uh, and, you know, there's those wonderful doonas that you can get that are actually kind of half, you know, lighter weight for the guy and, you know, heavier weight for the woman. That can actually <laughs> and get then you get it around the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> and it all, all goes, yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, but melatonin also influences your body. That's one of the things that melatonin does is it actually drops that core body temperature. It helps that um, core body temperature to go. So if there was differences in, you know, melatonin output and timing and that, that could also affect temperature. Um, as well, but I think that what they say they recommend is around 19 degrees in the bedroom is kind of an ideal gotcha. temperature. And most people would probably say they sleep better in winter, um, or you know the change of seasons rather than those really hot summer oh, yeah. nights. Yeah. yeah. What about the issue of quality versus quantity? How do we how do we know we're getting good restful sleep rather than just a lot of time asleep? And indeed, I've got to ask here: When would you start to suspect a red flag that something might be wrong here, like sleep apnea? Well, sleep apnea, I would be suspecting if they um, are feeling constantly tired and unrefreshed from their sleep, mm. and in the absence of other things. Um, the other big red flag for sleep apnea is snoring right if they if they snore and um so that's often you know you can ask them if their partner complains about their snoring or there's actually apps that you can get that record your the snore lab is one that i get people to use ah, okay. and uh it will record your sleep over various amounts of nights and give you a snore score and while it's obviously not like being in a a sleep lab and having the, the machines and all that paraphernalia it does give a indication if there, if it's something that should be further investigated and referred to a GP who can then refer on to a sleep study to get that apnea diagnosed another thing would be if they are overweight and suffer from reflux and things like that I would start to right. think okay we're looking potentially at um, sleep apnea and it's quite a common um, thing to find that oh, people have that and uh and obviously, it's one that you do want to get addressed. Mm, uh, snoring is not necessarily just an annoying um, situation. It can actually have health risks, especially for your cardiovascular and uh, your um, mental health, like can kind of lead to dementias and stuff like that. There, mm. research is pointing to that now, just because of that loss of oxygen to the brain. And I might point out for our listeners that sleep apnea is not necessarily. Um, although commonly it is not necessarily just uh, uh, tied to obese people. Indeed, um, I had an ex-colleague whose husband died, a fit, young, healthy guy who died in his sleep um, and he had, died from sleep apnea. Um, it was just, and it was devastating. Yeah, that's very tragic. And it's a very good point you make there, Andrew. It's, yeah, it's not uh, just with people who are overweight or obese, it's yeah, it, it can happen to everyone, um, anyone you know who 
you know, is having those moments where they're just not breathing, you know, during the night. Yeah, so that unrefreshed sleep. awakening. Yeah, unrefreshed yep. sleep, tired during the during the daytime, particularly trying to or particularly finding they need to nod off or find they nod off at certain periods during the day. Yeah, that, that's a that's a red flag and should be addressed. Yes, definitely. So um, it's one that I definitely refer on to and and get them you know sorted out. And you know, sleep studies these days are a little bit less um, arduous than they were in the past. There's not so many people can actually have a reasonable sleep quality when they go in there. There's there's not so many cords and wires and they can move around a bit more than they could in the past too. So Yeah. Um, what are, I've got to ask, what about these contradictory issues, if you like? We would ordinarily think that caffeine and, the, and the, the stimulant type things can interfere with sleep. What about the people that say, oh, I love a cup of coffee before sleep. I love a cup of tea in the evening. Yeah. What, a, what about that? Like, is that something to do with improper detoxification or is that just the way they handle it? Well, I think the, the studies looking at caffeine, they haven't found strong associations. It's one that they kind of, when they look at sleep hygiene and study it in clinical settings, they sort of go, oh, we don't know about this. And I suspect it's because of those variabilities in caffeine tolerance and the detoxification pathways mm. of caffeine for certain people. But, yeah, I've got a client that, yeah, literally can have, you know, coffee before bed and claims that it doesn't, you know, impact. And I'm sort of, you know, wow, that's really... Because I'm very sensitive to caffeine, yeah. so I would never dream of doing that. But, uh, yeah, so it's it's like those people who can take B vitamins at night and not affect them yeah. greatly as well. So you get people that, that are like that and can do that. But <laughs> I think with caffeine, it is really, um, yeah, individual. And it's also how much you actually consume. Yes. If you're a high, regular high caffeine user, you're going to have a tolerance to it rather than someone who occasionally uses it or only has one coffee a day and then suddenly starts having more um and they sort of found a lot of that when they do because athletes use caffeine a lot in their training and, and for performance. So they've studied right. athletes. I mean, that's obviously a group that's a little bit different from the rest of us. But they have found that, you know, in terms of... Because they want to look at when they can use the caffeine to get the best performance out of them. And it is... Wow. They have found that you, some people can use it quite late yeah. in the day and not be affected I think maybe people should always be aware of why they're having the the caffeine. If it's just if they know it's just as a relaxing thing, as a treat or whatever, as a reward, fine. But if they're using it as an a as a a, a crutch for some other issue, maybe they're overstressed, unfinished work, um, they're yeah. trying to stay awake um, when they should really be getting sleep, or indeed, as you mentioned then we might have a, a sugar control issue going on. Is that? Do you look at this sort of thing? Yes, indeed. And I normally, when I'm looking at caffeine for people, I don't, if people are ha used to having their regular morning cup of coffee, um, that's something you don't really want to take away from someone because people get very attached to their morning cups of coffee. Yes, I do. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I would just be saying, look, are you having one later in the day because you're feeling tired, as you you said, are, are they using it as a stimulant mm. to kind of keep them? Do we need to look at their blood sugar regulation? Can I support them with, you know, other means that will give them that energy? Is it about having snacks at a certain time and a certain kind of snack that will kind of get them over that, needing that caffeine hit um, to have, um, you know, and especially I think energy drinks are, the, are more, you know, dangerous kind of caffeine mm. to be consuming because there's a lot of other sugar and stuff that goes hand in hand with those energy drinks and the caffeine's quite high in some of them if they have you know a 600 mil of some energy drinks has almost got 200 milligrams of caffeine so that's, yeah that's quite a bit <laughs> yeah and of course there's the old one and australians being the highest quota per capita uh intake of this and that's alcohol Ah, yes, alcohol. And it's one that can be really hard to or tricky to address in clinic in terms of um, people use it as a sedative to go to sleep. And it actually is a sedative. It will send people off to sleep. The problem with alcohol is that it fragments your sleep. And as the alcohol metabolizes, 
you get um, your sleep, yeah, your sleep becomes lighter, and you're not getting that refreshing quality of sleep. So yes, it will help you go to sleep, but it's not the best for your sleep overall. And in fact, it's you know in excess, it's not good for your health overall. Um, so it's one that I, with people who are having sleeping problems, I say no more than one standard drink a night and that's not your home pour of a glass of wine because there's no way that that's a standard <laughs> drink for, for most people. <laughs> and um, Or if they can do it, I suggest to them uh, a period of doing a 30-day sort of abstinence. And right. if I can talk them into that, it's often surprising they'll come back to me and say, wow, I just slept so well and I had energy. And it's like they haven't realised because we use as a you know society, we use alcohol quite a bit and probably at a reasonable amount, I would say, for most people, more than they probably think they consume yeah. when you ask them. And um, when they, in my intake form, when they sort of, I have a question about that and I kind of almost go, I always need to probably add about 20% to whatever you put there <laughs> and that's probably <laughs> what the reality might be. But it does have a big difference if you can get people to um yeah stay off the alcohol um and they have found like they've done studies where they've sort of because people have said oh if you drink you know if you drink had drunk in the afternoon and your alcohol had metabolized before you went to sleep so say you stopped drinking at five o'clock and then you went to bed at 10 so the alcohol metabolized they still found that it affected sleep yeah they still found differences in it so um yeah there's something else going on there with alcohol and of course Chronic alcohol, heavy alcohol users can actually permanently affect sleep and ah. brain mechanisms. So people who've had those sort of things, it can be hard to fully get them back to good sleep just because the alcohol is actually, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned sedative medications. And just before I go on to that, I, yep. something just popped into my head and it's an old lesson that Bob Bust taught me years and years and years ago. I remember this from his clinical nutrition course. Thanks a lot, Bob. And that is basically <laughs> these Swedish researchers. This is decades old. Swedish researchers, these weird Swedish researchers, were assessing how people metabolised coffee by, wait for it, smelling their armpits. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> And I just thought, who would be a Swedish researcher? <laughs> who would sign up for that? <laughs> who would sign up for that job? But I just, I remember that and I don't know, you know, like, hey, darling, I'm just not sure whether my caffeine's really interfering with my sleep. Just... Can you just smell my armpit and just see if... <laughs> Sorry, wow. Dars. Yeah, saying that would be an interesting partner um, communication or connection um, tip, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, oh, I might have to look up that uh, gem and see, can I, <laughs> I get my clients doing that? <laughs> I think I'd much prefer to be maybe doing a gene snip test for Compt or something yeah, myself. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably <laughs> potentially a more accurate way than relying on smell, which differs from person to person yes. anyway. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so now back on track, on to the, yep. the, the issue of sedatives. And we have our medication, our, our, our prescriptive medication, of sedatives. Yep. Indeed, there are some that you can buy over the counter, the antihistamines. Um, yep. How do they work? How effective are they? Do they have any issues long-term? And how do they compare or contrast with what naturopaths would use in the herbal, quote-unquote, sedatives? Uh, yeah, well, I think in terms of the herbal and the medical terms of sedative, there's, they're kind of meaning two different things. Like in terms of a pharmaceutical one, sedative is actually meaning putting you off to sleep quickly. And there's not that many herbs that really do that. Herbs are more tonifying and relaxing the nervous system. So um, there's sort of a bit of a difference when people sort of say, oh, I want something herbally to knock me out. It's like, oh, it's not going to quite do that the mm. same way that a, a sleeping tablet will do. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of a key in terms of differentiation. But in terms of the kinds of things that get prescribed, there's, of course, the, the well-known benzodiazepines. Um, and these are, I would say, doctors are 
probably are very cautious about prescribing them. Um, I don't, which is great and you know fantastic because they are a class of medications that's very addictive, and they um, really do reduce deep sleep time. That's your, you know, restorative deep sleep where you know cellular repair and all that's happening. So, and they've got quite high um, dependence. People become, you know, dependent and addicted to them quite quickly. So. I think they're only prescribed when there's no other option in short term. And from what I've seen in terms of, you know, interaction with patients who maybe have been on stuff for short term. So I think they're, you know, they're quite well regulated. But the other class is the non-benzodiazepines that you see quite a bit. And they're often called the Z drugs because they all start with Z. Oh, yes, um, right. I know where yeah, you're going with this. Yeah, Zolpidem is a is probably the most well-known one and it's the one that's the it's sold under Stillnox in Australia yep. and Ambien in America um, and various other things in Europe and that but they're the kind of the, the key ones that I can remember in my brain um, so it they also work on that GABA pathway like your benzodiazepines but they're meant to be less um, addictive and they are in one sense and they're meant to be a safer form of that. But it's really? interesting, the research is... I've got real issues with this one. <laughs> yeah, really scary on these um, still knocks. And um, it's, they, there was a study in the British Medical Journal um, a year or so ago where they looked at the mortality of these. And even with doses between 1 to 18 a year, so that might be someone who just uses it, oh on a long-haul flight, your risk of dying is increased 3.6 times. So that's pretty huge. And Is that, uh, all, is it, that all cause mortality or is that from uh, a specific causes of death, like suicide? Uh, that was all cause all mortality. All cause mortality, right. Yeah, all cause mortality. Um, however, there is some um, evidence that still knocks increases the risk of suicide by... 2.8% in studies that I've read. Mm. So that's that's actually... And there was one, a study um, that was done here in New South Wales and they looked at coronial cases and um, Zolpidem was implicated, maybe not directly, but in 90 of them over a 10-year period. So it was enough that the researchers Gosh. sort of said, listen, we should look at this drug and other research I've looked at has said that when they're prescribed with painkillers concurrently, you have the increased risk of um, respiratory deaths at night so while you're taking we're them. talking opioid painkillers? Yeah, yep. yeah, painkillers, opioid painkillers. And that's because of the depression of the respiratory centre. And if you're a bit susceptible to that and um, often though they they did say that it's maybe not picked up because the person maybe had something else going on and it's their death is attributed to that rather than the combination of these two medications um, and it's not unusual that people on these medications have can exhibit you know the parasomnias the sleep driving the sleep walking bizarre behaviour where they don't remember things. Yes. So they'll, you know, and it's more common than you might think. Um, there's a guy in America who's done quite a bit of stuff on it and he's really like, this is actually something we need to, to look at and these things, you know, how they're being prescribed um, should be a little bit more tightly controlled. And when you look at the, the benefits from, you know, what they say you get from taking these um, dead drugs, it's quite modest that it reduces the time to take and to get to sleep by about 12 minutes and prolongs your total sleep time by about 10 to 11 minutes. So Half an hour. Yeah. If you're lucky. What about the issue of shift workers and the impact of biorhythms and disordered sleep on our normal diurnal rhythms? Can we, you, you know, you spoke about our chronotype. Should we be sleeping to our chronotype? How does that work with the Western society, the pressures of performance and work? And and how do we regain restful sleep? Yep. This is a uh, really interesting question and something that I'm quite personally interested in as well. And in terms of shift workers, I mean, obviously, we, we do need shift workers, all our wonderful emergency services Absolutely. staff, our nursing staff, um, 
even people who work in weather bureaus and stuff like that, they all work shift workers to make sure, you know, they're keeping a watch on the weather and that. So these people, they have found that it's actually easier, shift work's easier for the owl chronotypes, so yeah. the later chronotype. No surprises there, really. Um, but interesting that someone looked at that and said, well, these people might be more suited to shift work. Um, it does have real impacts. And if you talk to people who've done shift work for a long time, they're often looking, especially as they get into their 30s and 40s, they're looking to get out of shift work because they find it harder and harder to maintain the energy and get any kind of decent sleep as they get a bit older. Um, it really, the research shows it really messes with your blood sugar and glucose homeostasis because at night that's all going down. It's You're not in a point where your body's wanting to release a lot of insulin and help digest and regulate that. It's sort of you know, it's naturally wanting to do other things. And if you eat food during that sort of, you know, after 1 a.m. before mm. six, 5 or 6 a.m., mm. it's it's not an optimal time to digest it. And there's a lot of um, gastrointestinal disorders that sleep workers may suffer from yep. because their digestion's not primed. And there's some research that indicates um, female shift workers maybe uh, have a a increased risk of breast cancer. Yes. And that was a 2016 study. So yes. I thought, oh, that's that's a bit scary. Yes. That if you were... And they're sort of saying that, um, Ivan, that there's something to do with your um, macrophage function. I think the research is still really being ah. done. But macrophage function that actually helps regulate um, any and clean up any possible aberrant cellular stuff going on is not as effective when you're working against that. And so it will be very interesting to see what comes of that research, I think. Yeah, you know, because um, that hooks into um, tumour-associated macrophages, the TAMs, which are a, yeah. a prognostic indicator of um, um, for things like breast cancer. Yes. Very so interesting. It's, um, it's, I've got to admit, oncology is not an area that I have a lot of knowledge in, but I sort of thought when I saw those stats and, and you know, the sleep and stuff, it was like... Yeah, melatonin as well, wow. of course. That is uh, that is very interesting and, yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on in terms of the research with that. So shift workers, um, look, there's various different strategies, but I think key ones, a lot of the times the workplaces aren't set up to really help facilitate their transition. And I think a big thing is that they have, you know, nutritious meals suited for that. Oftentimes in these places it's, you know... Horrible food, uh, yeah. Yeah, food that wouldn't be good anyway, but especially not good... Um, you know, if you're doing overnight work. And some shift workers say they really do try and put their meals to a similar schedule to if they're on day and just have really light, healthy snacks, you know, overnight yep. um, rather than eat a big meal that is difficult. To, and they said that that sort of helps them um, get back into a sleeping routine. I think it's better in terms... It depends how often they're changing shifts as well. So... There's lots of different things that we probably need to research and look at in terms of that to look at what are the best shift change times, not necessarily the best for the company, but best for human beings mm. <laughs> in terms of their chronotype. What kind of things do workplaces need? Do they need napping rooms so that people can have a nap in the middle of their shift? Um, yeah. Mm. And how do they how do they educate people, you know, their staff who are shift workers? Because some um, workplaces and companies do do some of that. But there's a lot that probably don't mm. do that as well to help people going on to, to shift work. So, How about um, how do you stratify your interventions? Do you always use lifestyle interventions first, then dietary, then perhaps any uh, judicious supplements? Or do you go in first with some supplements, say, let's get you having some sleep first and wean you off them? Yes, it's it kind of it does depend a little bit on the um, the case as it presents and how sure. long they've had it. Um, I'd say someone who really hasn't slept for a long time and it's it's you know it's chronic and they're tired and exhausted. I'd definitely go in probably you know reasonably heavy in terms of trying to get them to have some sleep because if you're not sleeping well, your motivation yep. and willpower is severely eroded yep. and um, you want people, if you want them to do diet and lifestyle and exercise changes, like getting into exercise, 
you kind of need to get that motivation up and and that and then it'll be easier for them to do it and you don't want them to feel like they're failing and going into you know a kind of cycle like that so yes I would look at uh, going in with treating that and often I had a um, a lecturer at when I was at um, uni and they would say about sleep and it's always stuck with me and I think it's a pretty general good general principle is that you treat the day to fix the night right you sort of have to look at what are they doing during the day especially with so many people of being affected by stress related anxiety or mood related sleep disorders you kind of got to go like how do we get your you know calmer during the day so that you arrive at night time and you're able to more easily wind down into a sleep state so that you're not in this constant sympathetic dominant state all the time during the day and then suddenly if expecting to flick a switch and go into rest mode um, and it's not happening. But then again, there's other people who can, you know, like I've had people who literally came to me and said, oh, just in the last month I haven't been able to sleep well and I don't know. When we unpicked it was because they'd changed their um, gym workout to high-intensity exercise class to the evening. (laughs) Maybe we'll just change that back to the morning. And call me back in a week and tell me how your sleep's gone. And when I spoke to him in a week, oh, I'm sleeping fantastically <laughs> again. So that was the one where, you know, it was, okay, we just That's changed. the KISS principle. <laughs> Keep yeah. it simple, stupid. <laughs> I know. And it was just like, <laughs> it's like, oh, I feel bad taking your money for this. But <laughs> anyway, it was, um, yeah, so it's good when you get that kind of result and, you know, people can just go, oh, yes. So, But it's not always... Uh, that easy and uh, sometimes you really do have to start digging in and unwinding you know different layers in terms of the health and especially if medications are involved and there's side effects of those medications Mm. that are influencing sleep so it's uh yeah a little bit more long term and nuanced there so yeah well we've spoken about sleep hygiene but there's actually several strands of uh, investigation that i now have to um journey on you've actually woken me up so i've gone (laughs) So thank you so much for taking us through sleep hygiene and, and its importance. Um, perhaps you and I will delve into some of the therapies that you um, you employ on another podcast. Yeah, I'd love to. And uh, thanks for having me on. It's been uh, great to talk about one of my passions, which is helping people sleep better. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, Please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.